ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن الا وانتم مسلمون يا ايها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحده وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والارحام ان الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم اعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما اما بعد فان استقل حديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هج محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار We continue with the sisters classes in which we are covering the tafsir of surah al-fatiha and matters of fiqh or jurisprudence that are connected to the woman and benefits from the biographies of the wives of the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the last class we left off with the statement of allah azza wa jal maliki yawmiddin or as has come in other recitations maliki yawmiddin and both are correct maliki yawmiddin and maliki yawmiddin as for maliki yawmiddin allah is the owner of the day of judgment and we covered that the ownership of allah 
is unrestricted and complete, different from the ownership of creation, which has restrictions. And it is not a complete and total ownership. In Maliki al-Middin, Allah Azawajal is the king of the Day of Judgment. And there will be no kings on that day. As the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam stated, يَقْبِضُ اللَّهُ الْعَرُضُ وَيَطْوِ السَّمَاءَ بِيَمِينِ ثُمَّ يَقُولْ أَنَا الْمَلِكِ أَيْنَ مُلُوكَ الْعَرُضُ Allah will grasp the earth with his hand, his right, and fold up the heavens with his right hand. And then he will say, I am the king. Where are the kings of the earth? He will also say, Ain al-Jabbarun. Ain al-Mutakabbirun. Where are the people who used to walk around in the earth in a manner of pride and arrogance? Those who put themselves up over the people. Where are these people? No one will respond. Allah Azawajal, He mentions, لِمَنِ الْمُلْقُ الْيَوْمِ لِلَّهِ الْوَاحِدِ الْقَحَّارِ For who is the dominion on this day? Or that day, it is for Allah, the one and the irresistible. We covered that Maliki al-Middin is the proof for the Rukn of al-Khawf. The proof for the pillar of fear. As in every act of ibadah, there must be love, hope, and fear in every act of worship. The love, hope, and the fear, all of this is proven in Surah Al-Fatiha. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen It's the love. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim That's the hope. Maliki Yawmiddin that's the fear. Today we come to the statement of Allah Ta'ala, إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ You alone, Allah, we worship. And you alone, we seek for help. You alone, Allah, we worship, and you alone, we seek for help. This verse here <clears throat> is where the Fatiha is split in half. Going back to 
the hadith al-Qudsi, Allah he stated, "Qasamtu as-salah nisfain, baini wa baina abdi." I have divided the prayer into two halves, between me and between my servant. So the first half ends with You alone Allah we worship. That's for Allah Because if you look, all of it is the praise of Allah and magnification of Allah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Well, if you don't count that, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Ar Rahmanir Rahim. Maliki Yomidin. Iya Kenabud. That's three and a half. Then from Iya Kenastain on, that's the other three and a half. So in from Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen to Iyyaka Na'bud This is all praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala The Fatiha itself is dua in its entirety But the first half is dua al-thana The dua of praise there are two types of du'a Du'a al-thana and du'a al-mas'ala The du'a of praise And then the du'a of request So the du'a of praise From alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen To iyyaka na'bud As for the du'a of request to the end, because now you're requesting. You alone we worship, and you alone we seek for help. Now you're asking for Allah's help. So this is the request. You alone we worship. Ibadah is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And this is the purpose of creation As Allah azza wa jal mentioned وَمَا خَلَقَتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ And I have not created the jinn nor the mankind except to worship me the purpose of creation is the ibadah of Allah but the issue is what is ibadah the ibadah the term ibadah has been explained by many of the ulama, past and present. And you find many of the ulama in our time, they have mentioned that from the best of the definitions that have been given for ibadah, 
is that which has been given by Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala in Risalat al-Ubudiyyah, the treaties of servitude. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala, he stated, Al-Ibadah ismun jami'un likulli ma yuhibbuhu Allahu wa yardah. من من الأقوال والأعمال الظاهرة والباطنة. شيخ الإسلام ابن تيمية رحمه الله تعالى he stated that ibadah is an all-inclusive, comprehensive term that consists of everything that Allah loves and is pleased with, from statements and actions. That which is outward and that which is inward. When looking at this definition given by Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala, it includes every aspect of worship. <coughs> And worship is four matters. Uh, from that which Allah loves and is pleasing. From that which Allah loves and is pleased with, inward statements, outward statements, inward actions, and outward actions. From the, from these four matters, they are, they are, there is that which Allah is pleased with. This is ibadah. An example of the inward statement. The inward statement, barakallahu feekum, is the belief of the person. Your belief in Allah, your belief in the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, this is the statement of your heart. And then the outward statement is, La ilaha illallah Muhammad rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The example of the inward action of tawakkul. Putting, putting your trust upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is pleased with that. Allah loves that. It's ibadah. Loving Allah. That's from, the, that's from the actions of the heart. Having hope for that which is with Allah. That's from the actions of the heart. Fearing Allah. This is from the actions of the heart. The pillars of worship. These pillars come from the heart, the love, the hope, and the fear. The example of the outward action, the five daily prayers that we pray, the giving of sadaqah, the paying of the zakat, the performance of the hajj, fasting in Ramadan, these are the outward acts of ibadah. Allah, He loves these acts. He's pleased with these acts. These acts are ibadah. 
But it's important to understand that all ibadah, number one, must be for the sake of Allah. Number two, it must be in accordance to the sunnah, to the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, or be in accordance with the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. These are the two conditions of ibadah. You have the arkan of ibadah, arkan al-ibadah, and then you have shurut al-ibadah. You have the pillars of worship, and then you have the conditions of worship. The pillars of worship, we covered them. Love, hope, and fear. And this is present in Surah Al-Fatiha. And the conditions of worship, Al-Ikhlas wal ittibah also present in Surah Al-Fatiha. Iyaka na'budu. That's the Ikhlas. You alone, Allah, we worship. And the statement, Ihdina Siratul Mustaqim, that's the Ittibah. Guide us to the straight path. Siratul Ladina and Amta The path of those whom your favor is upon, and we will come to that, inshallah. But both conditions are present in Fatiha. As well as other places in the Quran. Allah Azawajal he mentions for man kana yarju liqa'a rabbi. The last verse in Surah Al-Kaf. Therefore, whoever hopes with the meeting with his Lord, meaning the Muslim, then let him work righteous actions. That's the ittibah, the following of the Prophet And let him not associate anyone in the worship of his Lord. That's the ikhlas. Also in Surah Al-Bayinah, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ دِينَ حُنَفَا And they were not commanded. That's the following of the legislation. Except that they worship Allah alone, sincerely making the religion for Him as monotheist. That's the ikhlas. And there are other places in the Qur'an that establish the proof for these two conditions. As for in the Sunnah, then we have the well-known hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the hadith of, uh, of, of Umar ibn Khattab where he stated, I heard the Messenger of Allah ﷺ say, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلَّ مْرِئٍ مَا نَوَى فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِ فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِ وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى الدُّنْيَا يُسِيبُهَا وَإِلَى مْرَأَةٍ يَنْقِحُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِ That indeed actions are based upon the intentions. And for every act or for every person, there is an intention behind his actions or her actions. So whoever's migration to Allah and His Messenger, 
then his migration is to Allah and his messenger. And whoever's migration was to attain some worldly matter or to take a woman's hand in marriage, then his migration is to that which he migrated for. Thus for ikhlas. As for the following of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then we have his statement, فَمَنْ رَغِبَ أَنْ سُنَّتِي فَلَيْسَ مِنِّي Whoever desires other than my sunnah, he's not from me. Also, the famous narration on the authority of Aisha radiallahu anha, that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he stated, <coughs> مَنْ عَمِلَ عَمَلًا لَيْسَ عَلَيْهِ أَفْوَانْ نَعْمْ The first one, مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي أَمْرِنَا هَذَا مَا لَيْسَ مِنْهُ فَهُوَ رَدٌ Whoever does an action, مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي أَمْرِنَا هَذَا مَا مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي أَمْرِنَا هَذَا مَا لَيْسَ مِنْهُ فَهُوَ رَدٌ And in the other wording, مَنْ عَمِلَ عَمَلًا لَيْسَ عَلَيْهِ أَمْرٌ فَهُوَ رَدٌ Two wordings, both on the authority of Aisha رضي الله عنها. The first wording, whoever introduces something into this affair of ours that's not from it, is rejected. This wording specifically is for the one who makes up the innovation. But then you may have a person say, well, I didn't make this up. This is what I was taught. The second wording is for that individual. Whoever does an action that does not have our affair over, meaning it's not in accordance to Islam, the Quran and the Sunnah, is rejected. So in both cases, the one who is adding or making up the act, or making up the statement, or making up the matter of creed, which is from the actions of the heart, and it is not from Islam, there's no proofs and evidences for this, this is not something the Prophet did, this is not something the Prophet said, this is not something that the Prophet Wasallam believed, it's rejected. And those who did not introduce this matter into the religion, but they are the practitioners of this matter. The second wording is for them. Whoever doesn't act, that does not have our affair over it, it is rejected. So whether the person is the one who introduced the innovation, or the one who is merely practicing the innovation, in both cases, it is rejected. When it comes to these two matters, the people are divided into four categories. The first category, those who worship Allah sincerely and correctly. Their worship 
is for Allah alone and their worship is in accordance to that which the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taught us. This category of people, their actions are accepted. Then you have those, their worship is done sincerely but is not done correctly. The people, their intentions are pure and sound. However, that which they're doing is not from the religion, is innovation. This is rejected. The third category, those whose worship is correct but is not done sincerely. Likewise, this category of people, their worship is rejected. And then the last category of people, those who don't have sincerity, nor are they following the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the likes of these individuals, the hypocrites, those who enter into the fold of Islam to destroy Islam from within. And they make up things in the religion to mislead the Muslims away from that which Allah revealed. Like Abdullah ibn Saba, the Jew from Yemen who entered into Islam to destroy Islam from within. As he is the one who incited the people against Uthman ibn Affan. He is the one who came up with this matter of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu an being Allah and better than Abu Bakr and Umar the Shiite they come from Abdullah ibn Sabah now so Ibadah an all-inclusive comprehensive term that, in, that consists of Everything that Allah loves and is pleased with From the statements and the actions that are outward and inward When a person says You alone Allah we worship Here The statement Iyaka it benefits restriction. And that is, the act of ibadah is for Allah alone, because you're mentioning Allah first and then the ibadah second. Different from if you was to mention the ibadah first and then Allah second. That doesn't necessitate restriction. When you say, you Allah alone, we worship. That means the ibadah is for Allah. Instead of saying, we worship you Allah. That doesn't mean you don't worship anybody else, as the ulama they say. But when you say you alone Allah we worship, mentioning Allah first, and then the act second, then this is an establishment that the worship is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. <clears throat> the statement This is the proof for the Tawheed of Ibadah 
as we covered, that Surah Al-Fatiha consists of all three categories of Tawheed. And Iyyaka Na'bud is the protection from Ar-Riyah. Because a person, when saying this, is establishing that the worship is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. No shirk, whether it's major shirk or minor shirk. As for Iyyaka Nasta'een, which is the beginning of the second half of the Fatiha, this prevents a person from arrogance. In establishing that one is weak and in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For we are, barakallah fikum, we are deficient in our strength. We have strength, we have power and might, but our power and our might and our strength has limitations. Allah Azza wa Jal is Al-Qawi, Al-Aziz. Yes, a person can be Qawi, but he is not Al-Qawi. A person can be strong, but he is not the most strong. A person can have might, but he's not the Almighty. Allah Azza wa Jal, He mentions in the Quran, in Surah Al-Fatir, verse number 15, Ya ayyuhal nas, antumul fuqara'u ilallah. O mankind, Allah is addressing everyone, mankind and the jinn. O mankind, you are poor and in need of Allah. Wallahu huwa al-ghaniyul hamid. And Allah, He is the one who is the all-rich and the all-praiseworthy. So Allah establishes here in this verse that all of mankind, and also when you, you the word anas, it includes the jinn. O mankind and jinn indeed, you are the ones who are poor and in need of Allah. And Allah is Al-Ghani, the one who is all-rich, not in need of anyone or anything. And He is the all-praiseworthy. A person may be rich, but he doesn't own everything. He doesn't have everything. Even the richest person in the dunya is poor in the need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when a person understands that he is in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this prevents the person from being arrogant and being one who views himself as high, having this high and great status and looking down upon the people. We seek Allah's aid and His help 
upon carrying out the acts of worship. Without the help of Allah, without the success being given to a person from Allah, you will not be able to worship Allah. So we worship Allah alone and on top of that we seek Allah's aid and His help in worshiping Him. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, احرس على ما ينفعق واستعن بالله ولا تعجز Be diligent in doing that which benefits you. Seek help with Allah and do not be incompetent. And then the narration where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was advising Abdullah ibn Abbas إذا استعنت فاستعن بالله and when you seek help, seek help with Allah. When you seek help, seek help with Allah. This statement, shows that we are to put our trust upon Allah, seeking His help, turning towards Him for the guidance. And the success in life. Do not turn towards other than Allah placing your dependency upon them. For Allah Azawajal is the owner of all things. And everything is with Allah. So turn to Allah and ask Allah. Not the creation who also is in need of asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The statement, You alone Allah, we seek for help. This does not negate the permissibility of getting help from creation in that which the creation has the ability to help you in. Allah Azza wa Jal mentions what ta'awanu ala al-birri wa taqwa wala ta'awanu ala al-ithm wa udwan. Help each other and cooperate with one another upon righteousness and piety. And do not help one another and cooperate with one another upon sin and transgression. Surah Al-Ma'idah verse number 2. So here, Allah Azawajal is commanding us to help one another in those things that we have the ability to help one another in and cooperate with one another upon from the matters of righteousness and piety. Meaning, Doing that which is good and staying away from that which is evil. We help one another in those matters, giving advice and other than that. A person wants to go to Hajj, alhamdulillah. People put their money together to help a brother who's never been to Hajj to go to Hajj and the likes. A sister is in need of garments to cover herself, but she's a poor sister, alhamdulillah. The sisters come together and put together a fund for the sister or they give some garments that they no longer use that's in good condition to help the sister to cover that's helping her to worship Allah 
This is not shirk if she was to ask. You know, sisters, I'm, I'm, I just had a situation. I lost everything. I'm in need. No. So, one is allowed to ask for help from the creation and that which they have the ability to do when there is a need to ask. <clears throat> ask for those matters in which only Allah Azawajal has the ability to do. Asking anyone other than Allah is shirk in this matter. Inshallah ta'ala, we move on to the next class. Bismillah, alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salam ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Amma ba'd. In the last class, we're still covering the matter of the removal of impurities. And we covered how to remove the impurities uh, from the garment, the impurity of the blood that is nejis from the monthly cycle and the blood of nifas, the postnatal bleeding. Also, we covered the narration dealing with the impurities that get upon the bottom of the garment or the tail end of the garment when a woman is walking and that which comes after it purifies it. However, if the impurity remains and is visible even after she has walked in a clean area then it is upon her to clean that area of the garment. Also, we covered the matter of the removal of the pre-seminal fluid that gets upon the garment from being aroused that this is najis al-madhi or al-madhi <clears throat> and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had mentioned to the companion who had a severe case of pre-seminal fluid coming out of his private and he used to make ghusl a lot 
The Prophet ﷺ mentioned to him, إِنَّمَا يَجْزِيكَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ الْوُضُوْ That indeed the wudu would have sufficed you from that, meaning you did not have to make a ghusl every time. For the pre-seminal fluid coming out of the private, it breaks the wudu, but it's the lesser form of breaking one state of purification. And it is not like when the person has an ejaculation or semen coming out of one from sexual contact or a wet dream. For that breaks the state of purity in the major way, which necessitates the ghusl. So the Sahabi, he stated, Ya Rasulullah, kayfa bima yusibu thawbi min? O Messenger of Allah, what am I to do regarding my garment that this pre-seminal fluid has got upon? The Prophet ﷺ stated, Yakfiq an ta'khudha kaffan min ma' fatandaha bihi thawbak haythu tara annahu qad asaba min. The Prophet ﷺ said that it will suffice you to take a handful of water and put it upon your garment where you see that the pre-seminal fluid has got upon. Another point is in relation to the bottom of your footwear from the narration of Abu Sa'id radiallahu an anna nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam stated idha jaa ahadukum ila al-masjid falyanzur fa'in ra'a fi na'alayhi khadaran aw adhan falyamsahu wa liyusalli fihima that when one of you comes to the masjid, let he or she look at the bottom of one's footwear. And if the person sees that there is some impurities on the bottom of the footwear, then let that person wipe their footwear on the ground, meaning to purify it by way of the ground. And then let the person pray in his or her footwear. Uh, this hadith is used by the scholars as well as the other narration which dealt with the tail end of the woman's garment being purified by that which comes after from the earth. They use these narrations to show that not only water is a means of purification, but in the legislation, the clean earth is also a means of purification. And this narration here one must keep in mind that in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the masjid floor was not carpeted. It was dirt and like pebbles and the likes. So the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba, they prayed in their shoes. They prayed in their footwear. And the proof of this is the Prophet ﷺ 
leading the salat, and then while in the salat, he took off his sandals and placed them to his side. And the companions seen this, and they did the same. So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he questioned them as to, and this is after the salat, why did they take off their footwear? And they said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we seen that you took off your footwear, so we took off our footwear. And then the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he mentioned that Jibreel salam informed him that there was impurities on the bottom of his footwear, so he took it off and continued his prayer. So when one of you comes to the masjid, then let him look at his or her footwear. And that ruling is for the woman also. As the woman, they used to attend the congregational prayer in the time of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And also the hadith, An-Nisa shaqa'iqul rijal, that the women are the twin halves of the men. So whatever goes for the men, it goes for the women, except in the case where the proof indicates and shows that the matter is something specifically for the men, excluding the women, or specifically for the women, excluding the men. That narration with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taking off his footwear, the scholars they use that narration as a proof that if a person had impurities upon one's garment, and the person did not know and prayed like that. The salah is sound. The salah is sound. What is not allowed is that a person knowingly prays <clears throat> with impurities upon one's garment or upon one's footwear. We come to the narration. Purifying one's garment from the urine of a baby. An Abi Samh Khadim al Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. قال قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يغسل من بول الجارية ويرش من بول الغلام This narration on authority of Abu As-Samh the servant of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he stated 
that the urine of the baby girl is to be washed. Whereas the urine of the baby boy is sprinkled with water. The baby that is intended here in this narration is the baby that is dependent upon the breast milk. The baby that doesn't eat food regularly and as and depends on the regular eating of food. But the child that is breastfed. As for the baby that no longer is dependent upon the breast milk and eats regularly, then in both cases, for the, the male baby and the female baby, the urine is the same as an adult. It has to be washed. As for the male baby and the female baby, that is breastfed, the female's urine is to be washed and the male urine is to be sprinkled with water. This narration is authentic on the authority of Abu Assam. He is Iyad, the servant of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He narrates this on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There's one narration that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was holding a male child. And the male child urinated upon the garment of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Prophet took some water and just sprinkled it upon the garment over the area. The scholars have disagreed as to why is it that the urine of the female child is washed, but the urine of the male child, the water is sprinkled over it. What's the difference? Many from amongst the ulama they stated that this is a matter of ibadah. This is a matter of ibadah. And what is meant by this is a matter of ibadah 
Meaning this is what Allah has commanded. And there's no specific reason behind it except that this is the commandment of Allah. And this statement <coughs> that this is a matter of ibadah, all of the legislation is built upon that, first and foremost. It's a matter of ibadah. And then you have, from some of the rules and regulations, other matters of wisdom. But then there are some things, this is just a matter of ibadah. And the wisdom behind it is that this is how we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this situation. By carrying out this commandment. Not all the time is a person going to know <clears throat> the wisdoms of a specific commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Other than it being a matter that Allah has commanded with. Or a matter that is commanded with in the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So it is not a condition that a person knows the wisdom of a commandment or a prohibition other than this is what Allah has commanded and this is what Allah has prohibited. It's not a condition that you know the wisdoms behind this commandment or this prohibition before carrying it out. There are going to be many matters, barakallah feekum, that you may not know the wisdom of it in its entirety. That should not stop you from implementing that commandment. Because one thing you do know, this is what Allah has commanded, and whatever Allah has commanded, there is good in it. Or this is what Allah has prohibited, and whatever Allah has prohibited, there is evil in it. Some scholars they have mentioned the reason why there is a difference and how the urine is treated because in most cases in those times The, <clears throat> the male child was carried more than the female child. And being that the male child was carried more than the female child, then there would be a difficulty and a hardship to always have to constantly keep washing the urine of the male child. Different from the female child that was not carried that much. That in her case, you can wash because it's not going to be something continuous. 
then this is an ease that comes in the legislation. Similar to the ease that a woman who has braids in her hair, she does not have to keep taking out her braids every time she makes ghusl. But when she has her monthly cycle and becomes clean from the monthly cycle, then she takes her braids out and makes the ghusl. Because that's what? Once a month. It's once a month. So she take, undoes her braids, make the ghusl, and then she rebraids her hair. But throughout the time when she's not on her menses and she's taking the ghusl, she doesn't have to undo her, her braids because that would be a hardship upon her. <clears throat> so you have a precedence for this in the legislation. Another statement that is mentioned by the ulama is that the urine of the female child is heavier than that of the male child. And they say that for this reason, the female child, her urine is washed. And the male child, the water is sprinkled over. Another statement mentioned by the ulama in relation to the difference. That the urine of the male child doesn't just land in one place. as it moves from place to place. So it lands here, it lands there. So therefore, it's a difficulty to wash it. So you just sprinkle the water over the area. Whereas the female child, the urine comes out in one area. Another point mentioned by the ulama in relation to the difference between the urine <coughs> is the difference in the the physical privates of both male and female. And due to their difference in relation to their privates, and this is connected to what was mentioned earlier about the female's urine being heavier, 
the impurity is of a different level. And this is from the ijtihad that comes from the ulama. And there have been other statements as to what is the difference between the urine of the male child and the female child. You have some ulama, they say there is no difference whatsoever. And both have to be washed. However, we have the narration of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that shows that there is a difference. And perhaps those scholars who say that there is no difference, the narration did not reach them. But there is another narration on the authority of Umm Qais bint Mihsan, and this is in Bukhari Muslim. رضي الله عنها أنها أتت ببني لها صغير لم يأكل الطعام إلى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فأجلسه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في حجره فبال على ثوبه فدعا بماء فنضحه ولم يغسله On the authority of Umm Qais, the daughter of Mihsan May Allah be pleased with her that she brought her baby child who did not eat food at the time, meaning depending upon the breast milk. She brought her young child to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam sat the child upon his lap, and the child urinated upon the thobe of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The Prophet he called for some water. And he sprinkled the water over it, and he did not wash it. So this shows, number one, the child was not eating food regularly. Rather, the child was a child that depended upon the breast milk of the mother. And the male child, the urine is to be, uh, the water is to be sprinkled over the urine. And then we have the other narration that we covered already, and it's also a wording on the authority of Ali bin Abi Talib. Radiallahu an qala fi bawlil ghulam al-radi' yumdah bawlul ghulam wa yuqsal bawlul jariya. Qala qatada wa hadha ma lam yata'ama fa idha ta'ima ghusila jami'a. Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu an, he stated that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam stated regarding the urine of the male child that is breastfed, that the urine of the male child is to be sprinkled with water, and the urine of the female child is to be washed. And Qatada, he stated, and he's one of the tabi'im, 
This is in the case when the two children do not eat, meaning from the food, like the adults eat. If the two children eat, then both of their urine is to be washed. Now, we move on to the next class. Bismillah, alhamdulillah. والصلاه والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى اله واصحابه اجمعين اما بعد we continue with benefits from the biography of our mother Khadija radiallahu anha <clears throat> and in the last class we had left off with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam freeing the husband of his daughter who was captured in the battle of Badr and the Quraysh they were sending the ransom for their prisoners and one of the prisoners was Abul As ibn Rabia and the daughter Zainab radiallahu anha she sent the necklace that was given to her by her mother Khadija radiallahu anha to free her husband and when the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he seen the necklace his heart became soft as he remembered Khadija from seeing the necklace. And also, the scholars have mentioned, he was also sad over the state of his daughter that she was still there in Mecca. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he stated, إِنْ رَأَيْتُمْ أَنْ تُطْلِقُوا لَهَا أَسِيرَهَا وَتُرَدُّوا عَلَيْهَا الَّذِي لَهَا فَافْعَلُوا that if you see it to be befitting to release her prisoner and to return back to her that which is hers, then do so. As it wasn't from the mannerisms of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to just take the rights of the people. So the Sahaba, they said, Naam ya Rasulullah, we will do this. As clearly they can see, this is what the Prophet was suggesting, was suggesting by uh, this statement of his. And when 
the Prophet Sallallahu uh, freed Abu al-As, he made a condition that his daughter be sent to him. And Zainab, she came after he was freed. And then later on, her husband had accepted Islam. Later on, her husband had accepted Islam. And the Prophet reinstated their marriage without remarrying them with a new marriage. And the scholars, they extract from that that if a, a woman accepts Islam and her husband is a disbeliever, she automatically is divorced from him. And she has to go through her waiting period. If the man accepts Islam before her waiting period is over, the waiting period of three uh, menstrual cycles or three Islamic months for the woman who does not have a monthly cycle, if the man accepts Islam before that waiting period is over, then the marriage is reinstated and they are not in need of remarrying with a new marriage. And likewise, if a couple, they're married, they're Christians, and they accept Islam, their marriage counts, it is recognized. Just as a side point, as this question has come up many times. Do they have to get remarried Islamically? No, they don't have to get remarried Islamically. They both are Muslims, alhamdulillah. The marriage is intact. Or if a man accepts Islam and his wife is a Jewish woman or a Christian woman still and she did not accept Islam, he can remain married to her as it is allowed for the Muslim man to be married to the chaste Christian woman or Jewish woman. But in the event, the shahid or the point of benefit from this is the great place that Khadija, she had in the heart of the Prophet Wasallam, And this came as a result of her being an excellent and great wife to him and her being a support for him and her being a source of comfort and stability for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It is mentioned by Ibn Ishaq تتابعت على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم المصائب بهلك خديجة وكانت له وزير صدق على الإسلام يشكو إليها ابن إسحاق رحمه الله تعالى he mentioned that the calamities they came down upon the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 
with the death of Khadija in succession, one after another. وَكَانَتْ لَهُ وَزِيرَ صِدْقٍ عَلَى الْإِسْلَامِ يَشْكُوا إِلَيْهَا Ibn Ishaq, he stated that he like researched and followed up on the calamities that befell the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the death of Khadija. Meaning with the death of Khadija, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he went through great sorrow. It was a great loss for him. And when it came to Islam, Khadija radiallahu anha, she was a truthful advisor to him. And he used to go to her and put forth his complaints about what he was experiencing and going through with the people. Or as is mentioned in some texts, yaskun ilayha. That he will go to her and find his tranquility and serenity in her. And what do we benefit from this? This is how a woman should be for her husband. Especially when her husband is in the field. of giving da'wah. He's in the position of teaching the people, propagating Islam. She should be a source of comfort. It is not an easy task for one to teach and educate the people, to be one who calls to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala day in and day out. Especially for those who not only do they work to earn their living, but on top of that, they're in the field of da'wah. That's a job in itself, being in the field of da'wah. So when the man returns home, he is in need of that comfort, that serenity in the home as a means of regrouping, recharging, getting his thoughts together, getting ready for the next day's battle with Iblis and his army. Because the day, the caller to Islam, he is in the forefront, and at the forefront of those who call to Islam, the scholars and the students of knowledge who learn and they teach the people, they are in the forefront in the battle between Iman and Kufr, Ta'a and Ma'asiyah, Sunnah and Bid'ah. They're in the forefront of the battle with the shaitan Iblis in his army. So 
So the woman, in following the example of Khadija, let her be a sincere, truthful advisor to him when it comes to him giving da'wah. Let her not be a hindrance and an obstacle in his way. And sometimes the life the life of the caller is a difficult life when it comes to finances and other than that. Let her be patient. And if she is in a position of financial stability, then let her support her husband if she can. And we're not speaking about a situation where you have brothers taking advantage of women, not this. Not this situation. As the Prophet ﷺ, he was not a man who took advantage of Khadija. He was a righteous man, upright man. And he did work. But once Allah commissioned him as the Prophet and Messenger, the situation changed. But Khadija radiallahu anha, she was very supportive. And she aided the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam financially. She aided him uh, with moral support. And she was the source of comfort. And Khadija radiallahu anha, when she advised the Prophet, she would advise him truthfully. And the Prophet ﷺ was comfortable with her to the point that he would voice his complaints to her about what he was going through and experiencing. This shows the origin of the relationship between a husband and wife. And that is that the husband should be able to have open conversation and be able to express himself with his wife. Unfortunately, we find that some of our marriages have been damaged to the point that the husband doesn't feel comfortable talking to the wife, the wife doesn't feel comfortable talking to the husband. But if you look at how the relationship was with the Prophet Sallallahu and Khadija, they had a beautiful relationship to the point that he was able to go to her and speak to her and get advice from her. And this was not something that goes against manhood. The Prophet Sallallahu he sought advice from Khadija and he also got advice from other, from his wives, not just the men. So he will go to her and mention to her that which he was experiencing from the Quraysh. So when the, the 
death of Khadija took place, you see the calamities, the difficulties and the hardships that came upon the Prophet ﷺ because he just lost a sincere advisor to him and one who would bring comfort to him because she was an aid for the Prophet ﷺ in the affairs of the deen as well as in the affairs of the dunya. So the death of Khadija was a great loss for the Prophet ﷺ and not a relief. Sometimes in marriages there's abuse taking place. So when the abusive spouse passes away, it's a relief for the other spouse. Not in this case with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the calamities were like one after another, one after another meaning the hardships that her death caused. Alhamdulillah, no hardship lasts forever. فَإِنَّمَا الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى إِنَّمَا الْعُسْرِ يُسْرَى For indeed, with the hardship there is an ease, and indeed with the hardship there is an ease. The scholars, they say, hardship is mentioned in the definite sense, whereas ease is mentioned in the indefinite sense. So there's two ease, eases for one hardship. So with the hardship, there is an ease. With the hardship, meaning the same hardship, there is another ease. So for every one hardship, you get double fold the east and never does one hardship overcome two eases Khadija radiallahu anha she was an aid and a support for the Prophet sallallahu as was mentioned and she died in the 10th year of the prophethood. And this year is known as the year of sadness. Not only did Khadija radiallahu anha die that year, but also the uncle of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Abu Talib died that year. So his two biggest supports both passed away in the same year. And it was a short time one after the other. So the uncle 
of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam died. And then Khadija radiallahu anha died. And she died in the area called Hajun or Hujun. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was the one who went into the grave with her or put her into the grave. And at that time there was no janazah prayer to be prayed. So you can see this hard time the Prophet is going through. He just lost his uncle, Abu Talib. And his uncle died upon kufr after he's trying to call him to Islam. That was difficult upon the Prophet We know that the Prophet went to his uncle and said, Ya Ammi, Qul la ilaha illallah, kalima uhajibiha anka in Allah yawmul qiyamah. Oh my uncle, say la ilaha illallah, a statement I can defend you with in front of Allah on the day of judgment. And then it was said to Abu Talib, Atarahab al-Millati Abdul Muttalib, you're going to turn away from the religion of Abdul Muttalib. And the Prophet kept saying to him, Oh my uncle, say la ilaha illallah. And then eventually Abu Talib, he died upon the religion of his father. Allah Azza wa Jal revealed, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتَ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَعْ You, O Muhammad, you don't guide who you love, but Allah guides whomsoever He wills. It was difficult upon the Prophet ﷺ. He wanted to seek forgiveness for his uncle, but then Allah prohibited him from seeking forgiveness for the one who has died upon kufr. But the Prophet ﷺ was given an intercession that is specifically for him, and that is to have the punishment of his uncle lightened in the hellfire, that he will be in a shallow part of the hellfire, and some pebbles or stones from the hellfire will be placed under his feet, and it will burn or boil his brain. So his punishment will be lightened in the hellfire, but he will not come out of the hellfire. So Abu Talib died, and Abu Talib was a strong supporter of the Prophet wasallam. And then after Abu Talib died, it's mentioned that Khadija, she died three days later. So that's death back to back. And it was a difficult time upon the Prophet Wasallam. So the scholars of Sirah, they mentioned that these calamities that came as a result of Khadija's death was like they followed in succession. And it was a difficult time for the Prophet Wasallam due to the status and the position that Khadija had in his life. That's how much of an impact that she was on him 
that when he lost her, it was a great loss. It was a great loss. So this is what Ibn Ishaqi mentioned. Naam and others have mentioned. And studying the seerah of the Prophet wasallam, that these calamities, they came as a result of the death of Khadija, or the hardships they came upon the Prophet, as a result of the death of Khadija radiallahu anha. But it did not stop the Prophet And this here is a lesson to be learned. That no matter what calamity we go through in life, we must remain focused and stay upon the path and worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and carrying out the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some people, when they have death in the family, they shut down totally. They lose their sense of direction. They can't function anymore. It's one thing to be sad over the death of a loved one. But it's another thing to lose focus. Here it is, Khadija radiallahu anha. The greatest support that he has from amongst the people. She passed away. The Prophet continued on with his mission. And without a doubt, he was extremely sad and hurt over the death of Khadija. But he continued on calling the people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He didn't stop But nor did he forget her. As we covered those narrations of how the Prophet Sallallahu used to mention Khadija in abundance after her death. So this here is an example for both the men and the women how their relationship should be with one another, how they interact with one another as a married couple, how the woman should be a support for their husbands and that which is good, and how the men should honor and respect their wives who support them and that which is good, not oppress them, not take advantage of them. And how we need to take advantage in a good way, I'm not saying not take advantage in a bad way. Take advantage of the time that we have with one another. Because today we are alive, tomorrow we are dead. Here it is, Khadija died three days after the death of Abu Talib. For sure, this probably, it wasn't expected. Death comes all of a sudden. So the husbands and the wives, barakallah fikum, 
take advantage of your time that you have with one another in a good way. Make the best of your marriage while you have your marriage. As the Prophet وسلم, and Khadija, they did. Because when one of the spouses dies, it's going to be a hardship that's going to come on the other spouse, especially when the spouse was a good spouse. Naturally, there's going to be sadness. Naturally, there's going to be some difficulty. But before that day of sadness come and that day of difficulty come, make the best of your marriage. Make the best of your situation. You know, sometimes the spouses, they go to bed angry at one another. Well, you may wake up in the morning, your spouse is dead in the bed. And you never got a chance to apologize and to rectify the situation. How are you going to feel? Alhamdulillah, when Khadija died, radiallahu anha, she died in a state she was pleased with the Prophet wasallam, and the Prophet was pleased with her. And this is what we should strive to have in our relationships. That we are in a good state with one another. So when we die, we are both in a state of being pleased with each other. And more so for the woman. Because her paradise and her hellfire depends on the pleasure of her husband with her if she dies and her husband is pleased with her then for her is the paradise if she dies and her husband is not pleased with her it's a possibility she'll go to hell and this is in relation to the righteous husband not an oppressive husband the righteous husband who's religious in his happiness and him not being pleased is based upon the religion and the likes Allah Ta'ala Next week we will cover the Narration Which is perhaps the greatest Event That took place with the Prophet Sallallahu in Khadija And that's when the Prophet first received the revelation And We wanted to leave that for last Because you know Again perhaps it's one of the greatest events How she was there from the beginning and held him down from the beginning. And in that narration, there are many tremendous benefits. So we wanted to dedicate a whole class for that. And then that will be the end of the benefits that we get from the life of Khadija. And then we'll be moving on to the wife of the Prophet, Sauda bin Zum'ah. Whatever is correct, the praise is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And whatever is incorrect, it is from myself. Subhanakallah, alhamdulillah, shadu wa la ilaha anta staghfiruka wa antubunah.